You have attuned to Cultural Corner with Dr. Carey. Welcome back to the Archaeology Fundamentals installment. Today's episode actually marks the final installment of the Archaeology Fundamentals. So you'll recall the season that we spent a lot of time discussing what archaeology is, um, how archaeologists think, how the field of archaeology has developed, as well as the kind of specialties within the discipline. But we haven't yet talked about protecting archaeological resources and why that's important, uh, which is perhaps an apropos way to wrap up the podcast. So the view that archaeological resources are non-renewable resources actually arose in the 1960s environmental movement people at this time were really reckoning with how catastrophic urban expansion really was to archaeological sites. So when ground is broken to build, say, um, a new shopping mall, for example, any archaeological resources that may lie beneath the surface actually become jeopardized by that construction uh, activity. And once that site has been destroyed, you know, it, it simply doesn't regenerate itself. Uh, that information attached to that site, those artifacts, those features, and the story we can tell from those things really is something that becomes lost forever. So one of the biggest threats to archeological sites is indeed urbanization. Chaco Canyon is really a famous archaeological site uh, that's located in northwest New Mexico. And it's known as the densest concentration of pueblos um, at Chaco Canyon, which have been dated between AD 850 and AD 1250. So, uh, you know, these pueblos at Chaco Canyon uh, have been standing tall for well over a thousand years, but their integrity has been recently uh, threatened. I do have an article for you in your learning path that reports on fracking that occurred near Chaco Canyon. Fracking, as uh, some of you may know, involves injecting liquid at a very high pressure into the ground to extract oil and natural gas. And the process seems to have caused these so-called frack quakes which actually shake the ground hard enough to register on the Richter scale that's used to measure earthquakes. So while fracking was not done in the immediate vicinity of the ancient Pueblos, the concern here though, is that the shaking ground may be uh, just enough to destabilize these ancient ruins that have been standing for over a thousand years. Looting is another major threat to archaeological sites. Uh, Mesa Verde, located in Colorado, near the Four Corners region, has seen tremendous looting in the past. Over 5,000 individual sites and 600 cliff dwellings have been identified here at Mesa Verde, and these have been dated to between AD 650 and AD 1285, um, actually making Mesa Verde the largest archeological preserve 
in the United States. Now, according to David Hurst Thomas and uh, Bob Kelly in our textbook uh, on page 233, quote, skilled pot hunters working the area of Mesa Verde who tore the roofs off structures and blasted holes through the stone and adobe walls to let sunlight in. 600-year-old roof beams disappeared in the looters' campfires. Hundreds of purloined pots appeared on an expanding curios market, and sacred kivas were damaged beyond repair, end quote. So as we can see, uh, just from this quotation from our textbook, you know, looting has caused tremendous devastation here at Mesa Verde. But this is a problem that we see at many other archaeological sites, too. Looting has been especially a serious problem at military sites, um, particularly those pertaining to the American Civil War. Now, some people might add that the location of sites on private property is another threat. In just a moment, um, we're going to pivot to historic preservation legislations that uh, over the last century have been aimed at documenting and protecting cultural resources. But as we discuss these, I think you'll notice how the regulations only apply to sites with what we call a federal or tribal handle or connection. Sites located on private property are really typically out of the scope of historic preservation legislations, uh, which makes uh, sites on private property particularly vulnerable. Now, approximately 90% of all archaeology done in the U.S. is not academic. Rather, it occurs within an industry that we call cultural resource management, or CRM. Most archaeologists uh, today, in fact, well over 50% of archaeologists today, are employed in this industry. Uh, CRM is defined as a professional field that conducts activities, including archaeology, related to compliance with legislation. And it's those legislations that we are very interested in for today's talk. So the Antiquities Act was among the first of these historic preservation legislations. And as such, you know, really became the foundation for all subsequent historic preservation legislations. It was signed by President Theodore Roosevelt in 1906, actually in direct response to the dramatic looting that was taking place in the American Southwest uh, at sites just like Mesa Verde. So the Antiquities Act makes it illegal to excavate or collect remains from sites on public land without a permit. And permits can only be granted uh, to uh, museums, universities, and scientific institutions. The fine for violating the Antiquities Act was pretty steep in its day. So remember, it was passed over uh, 100 years ago in 1906. So the fine stood at $500 and or a penalty of 90 days in jail. The Antiquities Act, though, also created the National Monuments Program, 
which aims to protect endangered cultural or natural landscapes located on federal land. So historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest may be eligible for the National Monuments Program. In your learning path this week, you'll see that I link you to an article that reports on some newly declared national monuments that I really hope that you'll take time to include in your studies this week. Another important legislation is called the National Historic Preservation Act. It was passed in 1966, and it essentially states that the federal government must consider its effects on historic properties, and this includes archaeological sites. So in other words, what this means is that an archaeological consultation or survey is actually required before construction projects funded by federal dollars, those that require federal permits, or those located on federal land commence. So when you think about it, this law applies to really an extensive amount of construction sites in the U.S. The National Historic Preservation Act also created an important program called the National Register of Historic Places, which is a, you know, a kind of national preservation program. Sites that make the National Register enjoy benefits um, like funding opportunities and also mitigation from the impacts of development. A site must be associated with at least one of the four criteria here that I'm about to talk about to be eligible for the National Register. So criterion A uh, is for a significant event like a war a strike or a march. A site might meet instead criterion B because it's associated with significant people, for example, a president, a musician, or an inventor. Criterion C uh, stands for an exceptional type of architecture or building. So for example, a salt box style home or a hall and parlor style home. Or criterion C can also mean a site or structure that exemplifies a particular time period, such as, uh, say, the federal period. And lastly, uh, criterion D is a site's potential to yield information or data about the past. So as you can imagine, in fact, many old buildings and archaeological sites um, do become eligible for the National Register for meeting Criterion D. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the more uh, popular criterions that are used to meet uh, uh, the standards for the National Register. I do want to mention that there are some special exceptions, though. Sometimes I teach a class on uh, just CRM, where we spend a lot more time looking into these exceptions. But for our purposes, I'd like for you to know that relocated structures, reconstructed buildings, commemorative structures, and sites less than 
50 years old are usually ineligible for the National Register. And I'll ask you to think a little bit, perhaps on your own, why this might be. Um, it really has to do with a site's integrity being compromised. And the fact that some things just aren't typically historic in their own right yet. I do have a few examples of sites located in New Jersey that are listed on the National Register of Historic Places that I'd like to introduce you to. Perhaps you recognize some of these. The Church of the Seven Presidents, located in Long Branch, is one example. The church was constructed in 1879 as an Episcopal church. It's emblematic of so-called Gilded Age architecture, and it originally had this beautiful Gothic-style Tiffany glass. During the late 19th century, Long Branch was considered uh, like the Monte Carlo of vacation beach town destinations. And it was frequented by elites of the day, including seven presidents. So hence the church's name. So the seven presidents are Arthur, Garfield, Grant, Benjamin Harrison, Hayes, McKinley, and Wilson. The church was listed on the National Register in 1976 uh, for meeting criterion B for significant people, right? So this makes a lot of sense to us, but also for meeting criterion A significant event. Um, again, for becoming that premier vacation town, which really kind of falls under the purview of an event as the regulations are interpreted. Now, the next example I have for you is Count Basie Theater in Red Bank. It opened in 1926, uh, actually originally operating under the name of Carlton Theater. And it primarily hosted vaudeville acts, uh, which are these dance, comedy, and musical acts uh, during its opening years. Um, but Carlton Theater also showed very early motion pictures which is really just kind of a cool fact. It's very cool to me. Um, Count Basie Theater was listed on the National Register in 2009 for meeting Criterion C, exceptional type of architecture, because of its embodiment of this early opulent uh, cinema architecture. Now, our last example is Old Scott's Burial Ground in Marlborough. In the late 17th century, a church would have appeared here uh, that was actually ministered by John Boyd, who some historians believe was actually one of the first Presbyterian ministers professionally trained in the New World. So the site was listed on the National Register in 2001 for Criterion A, significant event, because it's the site where a very early church in the region once uh, one stood. Now it also met criterion B, uh, significant people, because as we said, John Boyd was their minister, and he's actually uh, also buried here, by the way. Old Scott's burial also met criterion D for its potential to yield data because of the archaeological deposits that lay beneath the surface. 
It also bears noting that there was a prehistoric component that was identified at the site as well uh, that has a lot of potential to yield information about the past. The Archaeological Resources Protection Act, um, abbreviated as ARPA, was passed in 1979 and is another example of an important historic preservation legislation. Now, ARPA in ways is a bit more of an updated version, shall we say, of the Antiquities Act. And it actually makes it a felony to quote, excavate, remove, damage, or otherwise alter or deface, or attempt to excavate, remove, damage, or otherwise alter or deface any archaeological resources, end quote, located on federal or tribal land without a permit. Now, ARPA also makes it illegal to sell, receive, or transport artifacts illegally removed from federal or tribal land. Violating ARPA today uh, may result in a fine of $250,000 and or up to five years in prison. Although not a law per se, UNESCO is an important organization that has done some really incredible work protecting archeological sites around the globe. So UNESCO is an acronym uh, for an organization that stands for United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It was founded in 1968 to make an inventory of cultural property, historic areas, and natural areas uh, with the aim of providing corrective measures for urban expansion. Over a thousand sites are actually designated UNESCO sites today. I'm going to link you to the official UNESCO website, which you know I think is really just kind of fun to peruse. They have a really neat interactive map uh, that allows you to spatially see all of the UNESCO sites, but you can also click on each site and explore the details. So I hope that you'll make that resource part of your learning path this week. Now, the very last legislation I'd like to acquaint you with is a really important one, and that's NAGPRA, which stands for Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It was passed in 1990, following you know this real shocking report conducted by the American Association of Museums in 1988, and that report revealed that over 43,000 Native American skeletal remains, including victims of war, were held in U.S. museums. So the Senate, uh, by and large, was pretty shocked by this. And um, the report really raised a lot of questions and concerns about who owns the past. So NAGPRA was born in part from these events. And NAGPRA has several aims. And I'll walk you through these. So number one, to protect Native American graves on federal and tribal lands. Number two, prohibit the sale of Native American remains. Number three, recognizes tribal authority 
over Native American remains and objects, and we'll talk about what objects in a second. And lastly, requires an inventory and repatriation of remains and objects. So by repatriation, it is meant that the human remains and any associated objects are returned to tribal descendants or an affiliated tribe. And the specific objects of concern here are those that are considered funerary, meaning that they're placed within a grave or associated with human remains. Sacred objects are also considered here meaning those that were used for ceremonial or religious purposes. And objects of cultural patrimony are also covered here in NAGPRA, which are those that have cultural importance. Now, this does bring us to the end of today's episode, and it also marks the final installment of the Fundamentals of Archaeology. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed creating these episodes for you. I wish you good luck in your future studies, and I hope that these episodes have inspired a new sense of appreciation for archaeology and its treasured sites. Thanks for listening to the Fundamentals of Archaeology on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Take good care. <music>